0: Chapter Fourteen of A Negro Explorer at the North Pole by Matthew A. Henson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fourteen. Leaving the commander and Marvin at the igloos, my party took up the captain's trail northward. It was expected that Peary would follow in an hour, and that at the same time Marvin would start his return march. After a few minutes going, we came to young ice of this season, broken up and frozen solid not difficult to negotiate but requiring constant pulling leaving this we came to an open lead which caused us to make a detour to the westward for four miles we crossed on ice so thin that one of the sledge-runners broke through and a little beyond one of the dogs fell in so completely that it was a precarious effort to rescue him but we made it and dog-like he shook the water out of his fur and a little later when his fur froze i gave him a thorough beating not for falling in the water, but in order to loosen the ice particles so that he could shake them off. Poor brute, it was no use, and in a short while he commenced to develop symptoms of the dread Piblocto. So in mercy he was killed. One of the Eskimo boys did the killing. Dangerous as the crossing was, it was the only place possible, and we succeeded far better than we had anticipated. Beyond the lead, we came to an old floe, and beyond that, young ice of one season's formation, similar to that which had been encountered earlier in the day. Before us lay a heavy old floe covered with soft, deep snow, in which we sank continually. But it was only five p.m. when we reached the captain's igloo. Anticipating the arrival of the commander, we built another igloo, and about an hour and a half later the commander and his party came in. March 28, exactly forty degrees below zero when we pushed the sledges up to the curled-up dogs and started them off over rough ice covered with deep soft snow. It was like walking in loose granulated sugar. Indeed, I might compare the snow, of the Arctic, to the granules of sugar, without their saccharine sweetness, but with freezing cold instead. You cannot make snowballs of it, for it is too thoroughly congealed and when it is packed by the wind it is almost as solid as ice. It is from the packed snow that the blocks used to form the igloo walls are cut. At the end of four hours we came to the igloo, where the captain and his boys were sleeping the sleep of utter exhaustion. In order not to interrupt the captain's rest, we built another igloo, and unloaded his sledge, and distributed the greater part of the load among the sledges of the party the captain on awakening told us that the journey we had completed on that day had been made by him under the most trying conditions and that it had taken him fourteen hours to do it we were able to make better time because we had his trail to follow and therefore the necessity of finding the easiest way was avoided That was the object of the Scout or Pioneer Party, and Captain Bartlett had done practically all of it up to the time he turned back at eighty-seven degrees forty-eight minutes north. March 29. You have undoubtedly taken into consideration the pangs of hunger and of cold that you know assailed us, going poleward. But have you ever considered that we were thirsty for water to drink or hungry for fat? To eat snow to quench our thirsts would have been the height of folly, and as well as being thirsty we were continuously assailed by the pangs of a hunger that called for the fat, good, rich, oily, juicy fat that our systems craved and demanded. Had we succumbed to the temptations of thirst and eaten the snow, we would not be able to tell the tale of the conquest of the Pole, for the result of eating snow is death. True, the dogs licked up enough moisture to quench their thirsts but we were not made of such stern stuff as they. Snow would have reduced our temperatures, and we would quickly have fallen by the way. We had to wait until camp was made, and the fire of alcohol started before we had a chance, and it was with hot tea that we quenched our thirsts. The hunger for fat was not appeased. A dog or two was killed, but his carcass went to the Eskimos, and the entrails were fed to the rest of the pack. We ate no dogs on this trip, for various reasons, mainly that the eating of dog is only a last resort, and we had plenty of food, and raw dog is flavourless and very tough. The killing of a dog is such a horrible matter that I will not describe it, and it is permitted only when all other exigencies have been exhausted. An Eskimo does not permit one drop of blood to escape. The morning of the twenty-ninth of March, 1909, a heavy and dense fog of frost spicules overhung the camp. At 4 a.m. the captain left camp, to make as far a northing as possible. I, with my Eskimos, followed later. On our way we passed over very rough ice alternating with small flows, young ice of a few months' duration, and one old flow we were now beside a lead of over three hundred feet in width, which we were unable to cross at that time, because the ice was running steadily, though to the northward. Following the trail of the captain, which carried us a little to the westward of the lead, within one hundred feet of the captain's igloo, the order to camp was given, as going forward was impossible. The whole party was together farther north than had ever been made by any other human beings, and in perfectly good condition but the time was quickly coming when the little party would have to be made smaller, and some part of it sent back. We were too fatigued to argue the question. We turned in for a rest and sleep, but soon turned out again in pandemonium incomprehensible. The ice moving in all directions, our igloos wrecked and every instant our very lives in danger. With eyes dazed by sleep we tried to guide the terror-stricken dogs and push the sledges to safety, but rapidly we saw the party being separated, and the black water begin to appear amid the roar of the breaking ice floes. To the westward of our igloo stood the captain's igloo, on an island of ice which revolved, while swiftly drifting to the eastward. On one occasion the floe happened to strike the main floe. The captain, intently watching his opportunity, quickly crossed with his Eskimos. He had scarcely set foot on the opposite floe when the floe on which he had been previously isolated swung off, and rapidly disappeared. Once more the parties were together. Thoroughly exhausted, we turned in and fell asleep, myself and the Eskimos too dumb for utterance, and Commander Peary and Bartlett too full of the realization of our escape to have much to say the dogs were in very good condition, taking everything into consideration. When we woke up it was the morning of another day, March thirty, and we found open water all about us. We could not go on until either the lead had frozen or until it had raftered shut. Temperature thirty-five degrees below zero, and the weather clear and calm with no visible motion of the ice we spent the day industriously in camp mending footgear harness clothing and looking after the dogs and their traces this was work enough especially untangling the traces of the bewildered dogs the traces snarled and entangled besides being frozen to the consistency of wire gave us the hardest work and owing to the activity of the dogs in leaping and bounding over each other we had the most unideal conditions possible to contend with and we were handicapped by having to use mitted instead of ungloved fingers to untangle the snarls of knots. Unlike Alexander the Great, we dared not cut the Gordian knots, but we did get them untangled. About five o'clock in the afternoon the temperature had fallen to forty-three degrees below zero, and at the same time the ice began to move again. Owing to the attraction of the moon the mighty flanks of the earth were being drawn by her invisible force and were commencing again to crack and be rent asunder. We loaded up hurriedly, and all three parties left the camp and crossed over the place where recently had been the open lead, and beyond, for more than five miles, until we reached the heavier and solid ice of the large floes. Northward our way led, and we kept on in that direction accordingly, at times crossing young ice so thin that the motion of the sledges would cause the ice to undulate. Over old floes of the blue, hummocky kind, on which the snow had fallen and become packed solid, the rest of this day's journey was completed. We staggered into camp like drunken men, and built our igloos by force of habit rather than with the intelligence of human beings. It was continuously daylight, but such a light as never was on land or sea. The next day was April 1, and the farthest north of Bartlett. I knew at this time that he was to go back and that I was to continue so I had no misgivings and neither had he he was ready and anxious to take the back trail his five marches were up and he was glad of it and he was told that in the morning he must turn back and knit the trail together so that the main column could return over a beaten path before going to sleep peary and he captain bartlett had figured out the reckoning of the distance and, to ensure the captain's making at least 88 degrees north, Peary let him have another go for a short distance northward, and at noon on the day of his return, the observations showed that Captain Bartlett had made 87 degrees 47 minutes north latitude, or practically 88 degrees north. "'Why, Peary,' he said, "'it is just like every day and so it was with this exception like every day in the arctic but with all of every day's chances and hazards the lion-like month of march had passed captain bartlett bade us all farewell he turned back from the farthest north that had ever been reached by any one to ensure the safe return of him who was to go to a still farther north the very top of the world the pole itself While waiting for Bartlett to return from his forced march, the main party had been at work, assorting dogs, by this time without much trouble, as only one was found utterly unfit to make progress, and rearranging loads, for the captain had almost three hundred miles of sea-ice to negotiate before he would reach terra firma, and he had to have his food supply arranged so that it would carry him to the land and back to the ship, and dogs in good enough condition to pull the loads as well as enough sledges to bear his equipment. When he did come back to our camp before the parting, he was perfectly satisfied and with the same old confidence he swept his little party together and at three p m with a cheery good-bye, good luck, he was off. His Eskimo boys, attempting in English too, gave us their good-byes. The least emotional of all of our partings and this brave man who had borne the brunt of all of the hardships like the true-blue dead-game unconquerable hero that he was set out to do the work that was left for him to do to knit the broken strands of our upward trail together so that we who were at his rear could follow in safety i have never heard the story of the return of captain bartlett in detail his eskimo boys were incapable of telling it and captain bartlett is altogether too modest End of chapter 14